Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, you are listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen, and we'll start off today's news with news from Louisville. Residents packed the Louisville City Council chambers in an overflow room on Tuesday to speak for and against plans to build a new hospital and make other improvements to a piece of land on the north side of US 36 near Monarch High School known as Red Tail Ridge. The council had not made the vote to approve or deny a development. That's called a preliminary plat before the, our deadline. Tuesday night's public hearing was extended from the February 6th meeting. At the February 6th meeting, Community Development Director Rob Zuccaro explained that the governing development plan for Redtail Ridge is the ConocoPhillips Campus General Development Plan approved by Louisville in 2010. The council previously approved a plan for the site in 2021, but that was struck down by voters during a special election. Now the current plan includes 139 acres to be dedicated as public land, 2.55 million square feet for industrial or commercial buildings, and has committed $25 million to offsite improvements. The 2021 plan that was struck down by voters proposed 93 acres for public land, 3.1 million square feet for industrial or commercial buildings, and $16 million committed for offsite improvements. If approved, the preliminary plat would cover horizontal development, which includes road networks, sewage, water, electrical lines, and other infrastructure that needs to be in place before any vertical development can be built, including buildings. Based on the presentation at the meeting, Redtail Ridge would include a life science campus, provide a new home for the Avista Hospital, dedicate 139 acres to parks and open space, extend the existing campus drive, improve safety, and create and manage the local habitat. At the February 6th meeting, Dan Anderson, who is Chief Financial Officer for Advent Health in the Rocky Mountain region, said Avista Hospital only has one entry and exit point. He said that limited access puts the hospital in a compromising position. Anderson also said that while Advista, one of the largest employers in Louisville, would like to stay in Louisville, Avista officials cannot guarantee remaining in the city if they cannot relocate to a safer and a more modern hospital. Iona Carney, president of the Louisville Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors, said the board is in favor of the development. She said the development is vital to ensuring Louisville's largest employer, Avista Hospital, stays in the city. Louisville Downtown Business Association retail liaison, Eric Reed, also emphasize the importance in keeping Vista in Louisville. I'm looking forward to seeing Louisville grow and not just be preserved in a jar, Reed said. Residents said that road improvements would help improve access to Monarch K-8 and the high school as the schools have limited access 
and that also jeopardizes evacuation plans in case of a wildfire. Other residents pointed out that traffic is often congested on Campus Drive. The February 6th agenda included a public comment letter signed by more than 40 Monarch High School staff stating that about the need to improve Campus Drive to help traffic flows from both the school and Vista Hospital. During the public comment period on Tuesday, Residents raised concern about how the local ecosystem would be affected by construction, stating that wildlife that lives on the development have not been disturbed in decades and the site grading will drive or kill wildlife. The presentation showed that the land Red, Red Tail Ridge sits on includes an abandoned coal mine and the former Storage Technology Corporation building site. That building was demolished in 2009. And here's an update. On Tuesday, the Louisville City Council voted unanimously to approve the 389-acre Red Tail Ridge Preliminary Development Plan near the northwest side of US 36 and Northwest Parkway. Council members set multiple approval conditions on the preliminary development, many of them traffic-related. Conditions also included the developer creating a detailed plan that will outline safe passage for kids getting to school from the south. Development company Sterling Bay also may not do any grading on the site for four months as one of the approval conditions. The vote was cast after the after the this publication's newsroom deadline on Tuesday. It came after a lengthy discussion by both council members and the public. And in overall Boulder County News, Wildfire Partners, which is a Boulder County group started in 2014 to combat wildfire risk, has earned the National Wildfire Mitigation Award. Wildfire Partners offers technical help, education, and grants to residents. More than 3,799 households in Boulder County have participated so far by doing things as such as cutting down trees close to their homes to create defensible spaces against future wildfires. This group includes representatives from Boulder County, local fire districts, other government agencies, insurance companies, community groups, and researchers. Following the catastrophic Marshall Fire in December 2021, more than 1,000 homes to the ground, Boulder County voters approved a dedicated wildfire mitigation sales tax of 0.1%, which has been used to boost fire mitigation efforts. And in more Marshall Fire news, get this, the Marshall Fire Soup Brigade has dished up a new cookbook. The soup recipes that fed displaced residents after the Marshall Fire these recipes are now available in a cookbook for the whole community to enjoy, and free copies are available to fire survivors. The Front Range Soup Brigade has partnered with the Marshall Restoring Our Community Coalition to make the Soup Brigade cookbook. Mara Quizar, who is founder of the Soup Brigade, lived in Louisville at the time of the December 30th, 2021 Marshall Fire that killed two people and destroyed more than a thousand homes and other buildings and caused more than two billion dollars in damage. Quizar said she wanted to help her community even though the overwhelming greater community response was phenomenal. I thought I had to do something and in my family we cook and we bring food, she said, especially in times of unease and not feeling well. 
So she made a first batch of soup and delivered it on January 3rd, 2022. She said after the first delivery, she knew she it would not be the only one. The brigade grew. <laughs> the brigade soup brigade grew into more than 175 volunteers. They dished out more than 4,000 servings of soup to fire survivors over the course of four months. Cuisier said that the soup brigade volunteers would station themselves at locations that were handing out supplies to fire survivors so that people could warm their bellies while others got some essentials. Soup literally is nourishing, and it has all these other emotional, beautiful things attached to it as well, she said. Cuisier said that people were thankful for the meal as well as the community's help. And soon she got messages from people asking her, can you share your soup recipes? She said the soup offered source of comfort for displaced people, and people wanted to recreate the soup recipes for their own families. Cuisier said she wanted to have a cookbook full of all the different recipes given to the community, but she also wanted book proceeds to go towards Marshall ROC, as the organization is still actively helping the community. ROC stands for Restore Our Community, and it's a coalition of community organizations, funders, and government agencies. Marshall ROC held a cookbook lunch party on February 10th, where organizers gave out 100 copies of the cookbook to fire survivors, and they also ladled out plenty of soup for people who attended. All but one of the recipes in the cookbook were the same recipes that the Soup Brigade volunteers made for the community. Marshall ROC Executive Director Jerry Curry wrote the last recipe in the book called the Hardy ROC Soup. Curry said the title is a play on words as it's quite a hearty soup, but also that every action made at the Marshall ROC is made with love. The soup is made from items regularly found in the Marshall ROC food pantry, and they provide a reliable soup that all survivors can make. Curry said that many people describe the soup handed out from the soup brigade as love in a cup. Small gestures go a long way in the midst of recovery, Curry said. She said something as simple as soup meant a lot of people or a lot to people because it proved that the Soup Brigade volunteers took the time and care to make something homemade for their fellow community members. Curry said that people bond when they share recipes and that the cookbook is proof of how the community came together to support one another. The Soup Brigade and Marshall ROC is offering a free digital copy of the cookbook for all Marshall fire survivors. Other community members can make a $20 donation to the Marshall ROC and then receive a digital copy. People who donate $50 to the ROC can receive a physical copy of the cookbook. And more information is available at www.marshallroc.org. All donations go toward the Marshall ROC Pantry and other services. And in more general Boulder County news, Boulder will open food tax rebate applications for lower income residents starting March 1st. Individuals who make $46,500 or less can apply to receive a food tax rebate set at $104. A family of four that makes $66,400 or less may apply for a food tax rebate set at $318. 
applicants also must have resided in Boulder in the year 2023, must be 62 years old or older, or a person with a disability or a family that has children under 18 years of age at home. In 2023, Boulder workers granted over a thousand food tax rebates. They totaled to over $162,000. Those who applied in 2023 will automatically be mailed in applications for 2024. Applications are due by June 30th. For more information, go to www.bouldercolorado.gov slash services slash food tax rebate program. And now some news from Erie. Erie Town Council discusses contractor causing water line break. The Erie Town Council has met with representatives from a fiber internet company on Tuesday to discuss what led to subcontractor hitting a town water line and how to prevent similar events in the future. In 2022, the Erie Board of Trustees approved a franchise agreement with Allo Communications in order to install fiber lines. Allo and the town are under agreement that the town would locate town infrastructure and remain on standby as the contractor drills or digs. But on February 14th, Allo said a subcontractor struck a water line near 1109 Tallinn Avenue, which led to temporary water discoloration for residents near Old Town and the Creekside neighborhood. According to the Erie Facebook page, the water line was marked correctly. However, a subcontractor ignored policy and did not notify Erie about digging, and that subcontractor hit the water line in the process. Immediately after the water line break, the town issued Allo a stop work order. That stop work order is still in due effect until we see some more evidence that operations have changed and that there's a good indication that nothing like that will ever happen again, said town manager Malcolm Fleming during the study session on Tuesday. Fleming said that other contractors have hit town underground infrastructure before and the town is currently evaluating evaluating the locate system, which tells contractors where underground infrastructure is. He said the locate system is working properly and informing contractors where important infrastructure is. LO Colorado Region General Manager Bob Beersdorf said the contractor did not follow its procedure to ensure that no town infrastructure would be hit. He said the company terminated its relationship with the subcontractor. Beersdorf said Allo will also take further actions to ensure it does not happen again, like reviewing policy. Beersdorf said Allo averages about eight utility hits for every 4,000 digs or drills underground. Council members Dan Holbeck and Emily Bear said the town is discouraged that Allo hits utility lines at all. Bear said that the water line break was a waste of water, impacted the nearby properties, and it inconvenienced town staff who had to come in and fix the problem. Beersdorf said that Allo takes responsibility for the actions taken by the subcontractors, and he does not want the community to think that he is placing the blame on them. He also ensured Allo would be helping local properties for restoration and is welcome to hear from other residents to help them with restoration. Council member Ari Harrison suggested Allo hold meetings in the town to help repair trust within the community and learn how they can help residents restore after the waterline break. Public Works Director Tog Fessenden said residents have also lost trust in the town and their water. 
when residents start to question the safety and quality of their water, that's very concerning, Fessenden said. He said going forward, strikes to the town's water system cannot be accepted. The water line break will likely cost ten to $20,000 to repair. Mayor Justin Brooks said the town needs to consider punitive damages against Aloe for any future incidents. And if you're an Erie resident, remember that the next Erie Victim Advocate Training Academy will begin in April, where volunteers can provide support for people impacted by crime or tragedy. Volunteer victim advocates work as a liaison between the victim and law enforcement immediately after an incident. The training academy will also cover intervention techniques, active listening, victimology, victim rights, criminal justice information, and more. You can join the academy or applications are due by March 31st. You can visit the ericode.gov website slash victim services for more information. Municipalities seek feedback on increases. Boulder, Longmont, Louisville, Lafayette, and Erie are all preparing for the possibility of raising their local minimum wages at the beginning of next year. In the next few months, these municipalities will conduct research and community engagement to determine what each community's minimum wage should be. Starting February 23rd, there have been, will be, that's today, numerous opportunities for community members to provide feedback on current wages, the possibility of raising the minimum wage, and how such an increase could impact the community. Although the events are geared towards specific audiences, Anyone may attend any of the following engagement sessions. All events will include Spanish interpretation, but a few of the sessions will be conducted in Spanish with English interpretation. Here is the first event, events for workers earning near minimum wage students and retirees. This will be March 12th from 5.30 until 7 p.m. This is a... This will be a virtual event hosted by the cities of Boulder, Lafayette, and Louisville. On March 13th, location to be announced from 5.30 to 7 p.m. will be an event hosted by the city of Boulder. Contact 720-512-1597 with questions. On April 4th, there will be an event at Louisville Recreation and Senior Center from 5.30 till 7 p.m. at 900 via Appia Way. That will be hosted by the cities of Boulder, Lafayette, and Louisville. On April 12th, location to be announced from 10 until 11.30 a.m. This will be an event hosted by the city of Boulder. This session will include conversations in Spanish with English interpretation. Please call 720-512-1597 with questions. And then there are still other events with dates, time, and locations to be determined. There will be one hosted by Longmont. This event will include conversations in Spanish with English interpretation. In Longmont, you can contact the city manager's office at 303-651-8601 for more information. Again, this is all because Boulder, Longmont, Louisville, Lafayette, and Erie are preparing 
for the possibility of raising their local minimum wages at the beginning of next year. There are also events scheduled for business owners, employers, and self-employed workers. I think this there's going to be an event Friday at Longmont Civic Center. And then on, yes, today, February 27th. No, that's next week. I'm sorry. Next week, February 27th, which is a Tuesday from 5.30 to 7 p.m. This event will be at the Boulder Chamber of Commerce, 2440 Pearl Street, hosted by the City of Boulder and the Boulder Chamber of Commerce. And then on March 6th, there will be a 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., as well as a 2 until 3.30 p.m. event, location to be determined, which will be hosted by the City of Longmont and the Longmont Chamber of Commerce. Again, the Longmont Chamber of Commerce at 303-776-5295. We'll have more information. The five municipalities have been collaborating on a regional approach to raising the minimum wage next year. In August, after the Boulder County Commissioners last year announced their plans to move forward with increasing the hourly minimum wage in unincorporated parts of the county starting in 2024, they drew pleas from community members. Boulder considered breaking away and raising its own minimum wage, but the City Council ultimately decided to just wait until next year, 2025. Regional collaboration is not a commitment to adopt a new minimum wage, but a recognition that any decision made will have impacts that extend beyond city boundaries, as many people live and work in different communities, the news release stated. Information collected from community engagement and economic analysis will inform elected officials in each jurisdiction whether and how to move forward with ordinances regarding the local minimum wage. And in education news, Boulder County students show off science flair at Regional Fair. Fairview High Junior Zach Nagel's passion for environmental justice and skepticism about a company's self-reported data led him to test for pollutants and radioactivity near the Suncor Refinery in Commerce City. He tested multiple areas near the plant, sometimes scrambling over rocks and through bushes to get access as well as at two other sites to use as control data. He also spent, he said, dozens of hours writing a computer program to more accurately evaluate test strip colors and eliminate the possibility of bias. I learned a lot, he said. I appreciated the independence of designing a project. This is something I'm really passionate about. His research was among 127 projects presented Tuesday at the annual Corden Pharma Colorado Region Regional Science Fair that was held at Platt Middle School in Boulder. Corden Farmer partners with the Boulder Valley School District to sponsor the science fair. Middle and high school students presented their original independent projects to a team of about 85 judges, including local scientists and researchers. Many of these judges come back every year. Rich Smith started judging 35 years ago when he was a City of Boulder employee, and he continued after his retirement. While solid science is important for a winning project, he said, 
enthusiasm makes projects stand out. The enthusiasm and interest in what you're working on, well, that's what's so fun, he said. I really enjoy talking to the kids and seeing their enthusiasm for science. The top science fair performers are invited to an award ceremony at 5.30 p.m. on Monday at Platt Middle School. 37 projects will move on to the Colorado Engineering and Science Fair in April in Fort Collins, while three projects will be selected for the International Science and Engineering Fair to be held in May in California. At Tuesday's Science Fair, middle school projects included If Ants Can Speak Different Languages, The Most Efficient Design for Formula One Race Cars, The Amount of Germs on Chalk, building an AI-powered pet feeder, and identifying text written by ChatGPT. Olive Spone and Maya Roglineko, 8th graders at Longmont's Flagstaff Academy, both wear glasses, and they decided that they would investigate the effects of prescription eyewear on peripheral vertigo, noting that glasses do not correct peripheral vision. So they built a large box out of PVC pipes. They covered that box with checkered fabric, and they shook the fabric while a person stood inside to mimic vertigo. They found that those who wear glasses or contacts are more likely to sway and experience other vertigo symptoms. We got to combine a lot of things we were interested in, Maya, Maya said. It was an awesome and pretty unique project. I like science because there's always something to discover. There's never an end. There's always something new to learn. Quinlan Childs, who is an eighth grader at Boulder Summit Middle School and engineering enthusiast, tested the effectiveness of different airplane wings by building a wind tunnel to test wood ring wing models. He used a flat piece of wood as the control. He found a wing with a curved top and a flat bottom was the best design. It worked well, he said. And Hayes Marine, Marin, who is an 8th grader at Boulder County Day School, heard that water usage can be a big problem. He came up with a project on the best sprinkler. Using a soda bottle, hose, and ice cube trays, I'm sorry, Hayes Marin, it's a she. She measured how well four types of sprinklers sprayed an inch of water over an area. And the winner was a Mr. Mister style, you know, the ones that spray the mist. I love science, said Hayes Marin. It's a very interesting topic. The science fair gets me out of my comfort zone. I get better at public speaking and presenting. On the high school side, many, high, many students competing at the regional fair are either enrolled in the Boulder Valley Science Research Seminar class or have taken it in the past. Students in the engineering program at Lafayette Centaurus High School also entered projects, as did several students from St. Brain Valley's Innovation Center. Senior Taryn McDermott and junior Anya Wilder brought a project that they're working on at the Innovation Center on identifying the northern red-bellied dace fish, which has been previously reintroduced to the St. Brain River. They want to test the water for DNA to see if the fish are still in the release location, saying it's less invasive than other methods like shocking the water so that stunned fish float to the top. Every other method is traumatic for the fish, said Anya. She attends Longmont High. With this method, no fish are harmed. 
While the first tests using the DNA method did not produce good results, they are now planning to work with industry partners to pinpoint what went wrong so they can try again. This research is just really important, Taryn said. Monarch High School seniors Jack, Jake Angel and Jack Killian wanted to find out if there's a more accurate way to predict geomagnetic storms after reading about a storm that damaged SpaceX satellites. They had to try multiple programs before finding one that could create predictive graphs, but otherwise their project design worked well, they said. A science fair project is fun, Killian added, because it's you get to choose your own destiny. I'm excited to see if we can provide something meaningful to researchers, he said. A tennis player, Fairview Junior or Fairview High Junior, Stella Laird, is using machine learning to create an app that analyzes tennis swings. She filmed her own swing a couple of hundred times, but said at least 1,000 swings, and including other people, would still be better. Still, she's happy with her progress and plans to continue working toward an app. It's nice to have something on the court to check up on you, she said. I would use my own app. It would be so cool to have it. Centaurus Engineering Seniors Jordan Schatz and Luke Lesparance designed an all-season energy-efficient windshield cover. One side melts ice and the other keeps the car cool using thermodeactive paint. While they were able to make the paint pigment, their biggest challenge and one they're still trying to figure out is the paint base. Despite the challenges of trying to use a new technology to create a new product, they said that they're optimistic they can find a solution as they continue to work on it. It's a fun way to use the school's engineering resources to investigate a real-world problem, Jordan said. And in more education news, enrollment policy changes ahead, including legacy admission. The Boulder Valley School Board on February 13th generally supported policy changes that encourage charter schools to remove legacy preferences, also adding reviews of focus schools and setting a five-year schedule to review attendance boundaries. The board is updating three enrollment-related policies with a formal vote on the changes expected today at the February 27th I'm sorry, that's next week, February 27th meeting. That will be next Tuesday. Those three policies cover choice schools, open enrollment, and attendance boundaries. Evaluating enrollment-related policies was one of several recommendations made in the spring by the Long Range Advisory Committee. That was tasked with developing guidelines for how to handle shrinking elementary schools as the district grapples with overall declining enrollment. Boulder Valley saw about a 1% drop in enrollment this school year, while the district is projecting a decline of about 1.5% a year for the next five years. Projections show K-12 enrollment shrinking from the current 27,489 students to 25,365 students in the next five years. For the open enrollment policy, proposed changes include removing individual focus school preferences for students who live in specific geographical areas or who qualify for federally subsidized lunches. This policy would remove the details of the preferences used by charter schools and note that the district is committed to equitable criteria for open enrollment 
and the elimination of special and legacy preferences for school founders and alumni and for those who have applied for admission previously. The district plans to ask charter schools that have those preferences to discontinue using them. Peak to Peak, which is a K-12 charter school in Lafayette, includes preferences for previous applicants and for children of alumni. Summit Middle, a Boulder charter, includes a preference for children of school organizers, present and former directors, and siblings of Summit graduates. The bulk of the board's discussion on the open enrollment policy centered on giving preference to students who want to return to their neighborhood school after open enrolling at a different school. School board member Alex Medler, who proposed the change, said it would help prevent students from leaving to enroll in private schools. We can say, hey, stay in the district and come back to your neighborhood school, he said. Superintendent Rob Anderson suggested providing more data on the possible impacts and number of students who could be impacted before the next board meeting. For attendance boundaries, the main proposed change is a commitment to review school enrollment boundaries at least every five years and to make changes if necessary. Boundaries in the past typically were only reviewed when a new school opened. The proposed school choice the proposed choice schools policy changes include clear definitions and descriptions of the different options, as well as adding language around the desire to make choice options more accessible and equitable. Choice schools, which include focus or magnet schools and charter schools, are schools that fill their seats solely through open enrollment. The policy outlines how to start a new focus program as well as detail, detailing new guiding principles. Those principles include prioritizing, improving access to opportunities, addressing unmet educational needs, or attracting and retaining students and seeking to minimize enrollment impacts on, on surrounding neighborhood schools. The district will collect feedback on the proposed calendars in the spring and bring a final version to the school board for approval around October. And in job-related news, Governor Polis has appointed two from Lafayette, Colorado. Governor Jared Polis has announced boards and commissions appointments for the state, including three Boulder County residents. Dr. Michael Pierce of Boulder was reappointed to represent mobile homeowners in the state on the towing task which advises the Colorado Public Utilities Commission on towing regulations that investigates potential overcharges. Marie Pocaro of Lafayette was appointed to the State Apprenticeship Council with expertise in economic development. The council oversees registered apprenticeship programs in the building and construction trades, ensuring their quality and safety. And Carla Nugent of Lafayette has been appointed to the Business Experiential Learning Commission. Nugent will serve as a business member from the Colorado Workforce Development Council. The commission develops and implements work-based education and training opportunities, including a digital badging system and information portal. 16 branches opening in Colorado, the PNC Bank on Wednesday announced a significant investment in its banking branch network, including an approximate $1 billion push 
to open more than 100 new locations across the nation and renovate more than 1,200 existing locations through 2028. PNC, a subsidiary of PNC Financial Services, currently has approximately 2,300 brick-and-mortar locations around the country. 35 of its current branches are in Colorado, include locations in Boulder, Fort Collins, Greeley, Lafayette, Longmont, Loveland, and Westminster. In addition, the bank serves customers through more than 60,000 PNC and partner ATMs nationwide. The growth that we've enjoyed in Denver, coupled with our success, has led to a big investment in Colorado, said Ryan Beeser, Regional Vice President for PNC in Colorado. In addition to building new branches, the bank is renovating existing locations across the country to better create a more robust customer experience when conducting transactions or meeting with bankers. And now we're going to talk about wildlife and wildlife management. Greenwood Wildlife Rehabilitation Center workers say that the top five reasons that animals are admitted because they are either orphaned, attacked, sick, or hurt by collisions or trapped. If an animal appears to be orphaned, the Rehabilitation Center advocates for trying to reunite healthy babies with families over rescuing them. However, if an animal is injured, workers do not try to reunite it with its animal family, said Misto Tatro, the community relations manager for the Greenwood Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. Many of the animal injuries that the Greenwood workers see are a result of a cat or dog attack. As a result, rehabilitation workers advise pet owners to please take preventative measures by leashing any cats or dogs and removing bird feeders from their properties. We have a category called unknown injuries, said Tatro. It's really hard to tell where most injuries come from. However, sometimes you can see puncture wounds on a bird that denotes a cat attack. Birds are the number one animal that the rehabilitation center workers care for. Some common species are that are rescued include house finches, American robins, and barn swallows. I think the reason we see birds is mostly because they're a an urban species. According to Tatro, the busiest time of the year for the rehabilitation center is spring to late summer with more than 500 animal patients on site. She attributed the influx of the animals to spring in spring as being a time where vulnerable young wildlife are abundant. In light of recent snowstorms, Matthew Celesta, who is development coordinator for the Greenwood Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, said that the center typically sees grebes and other diving birds when the roads are wet from rain or snow. Although there were no birds rescued during Colorado's recent storms, the center received a relatively rare bird called a peed-billed grebe earlier in the year due to inclement weather. Greenwood Wildlife produces an annual report each year so that folks can see some of the types and categories of animals that workers have helped. Greenwood also reports its data to the state Colorado Parks and Wildlife Office. That office gathers information from all rehabilitation centers in the state. Colorado Parks and Wildlife uses year-end reports from rehabilitation centers 
to make sure the entities are in compliance with the license requirements, said Kara Van Hoos. She works for the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Rehabilitation centers are regulated on the types of species they can work with and how long they're allowed to keep wild animals before releasing them. Greenwood reported $1.14 million in contributions in 2022. That's the most recent period for the figures that are available. Their office is at 5761 Ute Highway in Longmont. So if you find an injured animal, please call the center at 303-823-8455. That's 303-823-8455. And in more Colorado Parks and Wildlife news, Colorado Parks and Wildlife workers are developing a mountain lion management plan for the Front Range. The state agency is planning on holding two virtual meetings Thursday, February 29th from 6 until 7.30 p.m. and from 6 until 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, March 6th in order to discuss how its workers do research and manage mountain lions as well as how humans and mountain lions interact in the region. More information on Mountain Lion Plans meeting you can sign up by going to www.engagecpw.org. Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials have previously developed a series of educational videos about mountain lions. Some residents in Boulder County have posted motion camera pictures on social media, mostly of nocturnal animals. Anyway, those are going to be very important and interesting virtual meetings Thursday, February 29th, and Wednesday, March 6th. And now we turn to news from Niwot and Gun Barrel by reading articles from the Left Hand Valley Courier. LID approves funding for Second Avenue Summer Concerts and Lucky Niwot Day. The House Blend Band will be back for a fourth summer of concerts on Second Avenue. The Niwot Local Improvement District Advisory Committee, LID, approved funding for the popular concerts, now known as the Second Avenue Concert Series, based on an application from the Niwot Business Association, which was presented by Michael Tomich and Patty Machen of the Old Oak Coffee House. Tomich explained that there would be five concerts this summer, beginning on May 18th. That's an increase of one event over last year. The headliner for the concerts is the House Blend Band, consisting of coffee house owners Tomich and Machen, as well as family members, staff, and other musicians. Patty and I don't take anything because of the coffee, coffee shop benefits, Tomich said, but other musicians and a sound engineer are paid $100 per concert. Other expenses for the free concerts include advertising, posters, as well as setup costs. Musicians from the Niwot gig opened the concerts last summer, and Tomich explained that they would return this summer for the July and September concerts. He also expects to have local high school musicians perform between sets of the headliner band. The estimated cost of putting on the five concerts is $13,420. The Niwot Business Association is contributing $500 while Tomach and Machin expected, are expecting to put in $5,000, so LID agreed to fund the balance of $7,920. The 
there was another funding application approved for Lucky Niwot Day. That's scheduled for Saturday, March 9th from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. MBA Vice President Deb Fowler presented the application, noting that the event was moved up this year because Easter comes earlier than last year. We've cut down a bit in our budget this year, Fowler said at the fourth year event. The LID approved funding of $4,372 for the St. Patrick's Day themed event with an NBA contributing $500. Expenses will include the cost of a horse-drawn carriage between 2nd Avenue and Cottonwood Square, Irish dancers, musicians throughout the business district, a face painter, a leprechaun, ferry, and photo booth, as well as advertising and promotion. NBA President Eric Bergenson, who is a member of LID, noted that the NBA tries to plan one event every month in Niwot. Two other funding requests from the NBA were also approved. Angela Hutchkins, who is the town administrator, presented the NBA's 2024 marketing plan. That was a budget request for $29,000 for the year. NBA Treasurer Mary Kuntz, also a member of the LID, said we spent $40,500 last year from the LID. So we are in for $11,500 less than last year. Advertising from 2023 that is not part of the 2024 budget included the Boulder Weekly, Boulder Magazine, and Longmont Visitor's Guide. The Longmont Magazine will continue through March per an earlier commitment, but will not be renewed. Advertising in the Left-Hand Valley Courier was budgeted for $5,565, and the Scout Guide for Boulder is included at a cost of $4,200. The application stated, This plan includes management of the website, weekly newsletter, subscriptions to our newsletter service, tracking and analytics, and advertising. Hutchkins explained, We want to get more analytics. We've reduced a lot of our print advertising, but now we're keeping the courier. The entire marketing budget for the year is $40,000 with $11,000 of the cost paid directly by the MBA. LID Sarah Cioni said, I love the idea that you're doing less print and keeping the courier. Bergenson presented the 2024 funding request for the Hutchkins position as NIWAT Administrative Coordinator, also referred to as Town Administrator. Bergenson proposed an increase in hourly pay for the position from $45 per hour to $50 per hour, but with a cap payment of no more than 40 hours per month. This raises the annualized total from $21,600 to $24,000, he said, and the MBA will cover $1,000. The application stated that the position was created in May of 2023 to assist the MBA and other volunteer organizations in the coordination and the execution of key tasks, projects, and events on behalf of the Niwot Business District. The new position and the incumbent have been very effective. We need someone like Angela who has a strong interest in the community, Bergenson said. She's definitely working more than 40 hours a month. He noted that Hutchkins is working with the Niwot Cultural Arts Association to assist with scheduling of events at Whistle Stop Park. LID member Jeff Knight asked if Hutchkins Kins could assist the Niwot Community Association with certain tasks as well, and Bergenson responded that she could. The LID approved the funding request for $23,000. Kuntz also gave the Treasurer's report to the committee, noting that revenues for 2023 were down 5.4% from 
2022 through November. Revenues from the remote sales and the LID appeared to be the main reason for the decrease with 35% reduction from 2022. Koontz noted that retail sales were down 7.9%, food and accommodations were down 6.8%. But the LID still retains a large reserve fund, which is expected to be over $480,000 when the final numbers are in for December. And here's a section called Spotlight on Our Neighborhoods, Old Town Niwot Magic. With roots dating to 1875 Old Town Niwot, the area on 2nd Avenue between Niwot Road and Murray Street, has always been a mixture of the familiar and the new and is widely considered to be the historic heart of town. John Nelson, a local carpenter, is credited with building the first commercial structure on 2nd Avenue in 1905. Most of the remaining shops in the first block were completed by 1915 and include the home of the oldest operating grange in Colorado. These buildings comprise the Niwot Historic District, which was designated historic by Boulder County back in 1993. Although currently a vibrant area with popular restaurants and businesses, things have changed often in Old Town with businesses coming and going. In 1990, the area was a mecca for antiques. There were more than 15 antique shops and a weekly Sunday antique auction. Wise Buys Antiques is the sole remaining antique business in Niwot, which is owned by Tim and Carrie Wise. They've been in Niwot for 37 years and at their current location since 1990. Carrie Wise has seen a lot of changes in Old Town since her time here. At one time, we'd see people pull up, get out of their car, get back in, and drive off. And so there really wasn't a lot here. It was bad. Now, she said, most every space on 2nd Avenue is occupied. Tim Wise, Carrie's husband, said he wishes that what could be retail isn't always, but conceded that property tax rates don't make that feasible for a lot of businesses. The two fondly reminisced about previous 2nd Avenue tenants. Carrie talked about one business that was called the Ace of Hearts, which was in the current Little Bird space. We never really could confirm it, but rumor had it was a brothel. She laughed. They got busted and closed down pretty quickly. Tim said that he loved Judy Wainer's The Whistle Stop and now what is the few-of-a-kind vintage and mercantile. They sold penny candy and local crafts like crocheted trivets, he recalled with amusement. My daughter used to love to go there. Tim also recalled a business called Beaks and Teaks. They traded in exotic birds, birds and antiques. Both Tim and Carrie said that they felt the bump out in front of the old oak coffee house. It's great for business. It gets people to sit and stay and see what's around, she said. The bump out, although, is in front of the coffee shop, and it belongs to Niwot. We made sure the tables had bright umbrellas in different colors, she said so it could be seen from the diagonal and attract attention. Despite the changes, Old Town Niwot is an anchor for the community, whether for businesses or events. Although change is constant, the charm of Old Town is lasting. Niwot author Paul Gipp was haunted by Hiroshima. He grew up in a family with a father who worked on the Manhattan Project and a mother who was an anti-war activist. The Niwot resident described his first novel called 
prodded by Hiroshima to a standing room only audience at Inkberry Books on February 10th. He said, I've rewritten the lives of my parents. It's been wonderful therapy for me. Growing up, I could feel the tension. He grew up in Beverly, Massachusetts, where the Manhattan Project, processing uranium and plutonium for use in atomic weapons, was underway. My father kept a piece of plutonium on his desk, he said. His father was a chemistry professor at Tufts University. He lived to be 93 years old despite his exposure to radiation while working on the project. Gibb explained that while his mother knew her husband was working on a top-secret project, did not know what the project was until the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. The novel is a fictional account of the interaction between the scientists and the pacifists. Gibb read from two chapters in the book, which explores the psyches and interactions of the two main characters, according to the book summary. The story begins with Alexander and Phoebe, the husband and wife, on the day after Hiroshima was destroyed and follows their lives through the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. As the story begins, Alexander defends his role in creating the atomic bomb, believing that it would end all wars. While Phoebe responds, can't you see? Well, I'll be blown up someday. Gibb described to the audience the parallels from his own upbringing, where his father, scientist, was harsh and rarely offered praise or a smile to give any sister. He also spoke of how his mother eventually began, became addicted to tranquilizers and alcohol, but moved to Boulder and became sober the last seven years of her life. She became a new person, he said. The first chapter was a fictional recreation of what I'd been told over the years by my mother, he wrote in the postscript. She'd become very open and talkative once my father divorced her. He described his father as always defensive about what he had done. Gibb was born in 1945, but did not follow in his father's footsteps. Instead, he obtained a degree in English. He also has an older sister, Bobby Gibb, who was famous in her own right as the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. The audience for the event, which was hosted by Inkberry Books owners Gene Hayworth and Keith Waters, the participants asked many questions during the Q&A session, followed by the reading. Gibb said he's done a lot of background reading while writing the book and hoped that the recently released Oppenheimer movie would create interest in his fictional account of a family deeply and personally impacted by the development of the atomic bomb. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.